Welcome to 8 Million, a podcast series that looks at the 8 million metric tons of plastic entering our oceans every year, and what role China plays in addressing this global challenge. 8 Million is produced by Sustainable Asia and its partners China Dialogue and Aya Recording Studio. Previously on 8 Million. We walked along the beach every morning and there were dozens of these dead birds. 8 million metric tons of plastic going into the ocean in that one year. What do you need to do with plastic? You need to stop the source, contain the release. At the heart of any great civilization, you'll find a river. China is no different. According to legend, China's first dynasty was founded by Yu the Great, after he learned to control the waters of the Yellow River. Ever since, China has relied on its three major rivers for trade, transport, and energy. In fact, most of the country's megacities still lie along the Yangtze, Yellow, or Pearl Rivers. Rivers are the key to the development of this enormous country, but they also carry the unfortunate backwash of rising prosperity, increasing amounts of industrial, commercial, and municipal waste. In this episode, we'll look at the state of plastic pollution in China rivers and review the country's unique approach to resolving the issue. So, if you remember from last episode, American researcher Jenna Jambeck estimated that every year about 8 million metric tons of waste enters our ocean. She reached this number by looking at how much plastic waste is generated on average by citizens of each country, and then looking at how many people live by the coast and how likely it is to see their waste end up in the ocean. I decided to ring up lead scientist Laurent Lebreton a French native living the dream in New Zealand. So yeah, we went a bit further here. Um, basically, what we did uh, was to categorize all the land mass into different watersheds. And, and then for every watershed, we estimated how much the runoff would be. So Lauren and his team went and looked at the river systems and calculated the amount of people living along these rivers and how their waste is managed. Yeah, that's that's how we figured out the, the top five rivers that we're most likely to carry uh, plastic waste into the ocean. And we found that three of those uh, were in China. The number two and the number fives were in India and Cameroon, respectively. We've also noticed um, worrisome results in countries like Indonesia and, and the Philippines. So. I'd say it's definitely worth looking into waste management solution in the future that can work for um, developing nations around Asia. Aside from making estimates around watersheds, Laurent and his fellow scientists also compared results from ocean plastic monitoring campaigns, such as measurements made by the Hong Kong-based researcher Lincoln Falk. So back in um, 1998 and 1999, me and my now retired Supervisor actually sub- were studying the water quality in Canton River in Hong Kong. 
Lincoln studied microplastics on Hong Kong beaches. He and his team combed 25 local beaches, finding an average of 5,500 pieces of microplastic per square meter. That's twice the amount found on U.S. beaches and still 50% more found on the coast of South Korea. They also noticed that beaches facing west contained a lot more of this type of pollution. And west is the mouth of China's Pearl River Delta. So um, if we find more deposition on the west than the east, then naturally that means that there is a significant source of this pollutant in that area. We believe that this large river is one potential and significant source of microplastic into the estuary. Um, because there is currently a zero effective solution to remove microplastic from the environment, except um, things like beach and coastal cleaning. I would think the government and any other organization cannot do too much about getting rid of these pollutants. This uh, points to the importance of preventive method- methods to reduce or stop plastics from entering the environment. And that's what we concluded in episode one of this series as well. It's nearly impossible to fish these plastic bits out of the water, so we really need to stop the problem at the source. Now, what is China doing to stop pollution from flowing into river systems? I asked this question to Feng Hu. At China Water Risk, it's a nonprofit here in Hong Kong that researches China water quality. Most people know that China has serious water issues, whether it's scarcity or pollution. And addressing these issues has always been in the top priority in government policy in recent decades. Feng explained that the Chinese government wants to stop the damage being done to the environment. So in 2000. 14, the Premier Li Keqiang declared war on pollution, so including air pollution and water pollution, basically started um, a more stringent actions from all departments within the government to tackle these issues. So we have a saying that non-dragons manage water because probably similar in other countries as well. So the water is not only about water use, it's also about pollution, managing water in agricultures, in all kinds of economic activities. So all these responsibilities responsibility for under different government departments to address these you need to different departments to work together to form a more holistic um, management policy to address um, our current water challenge in China. Feng also told me about the Water 10 plan, a 2015 blueprint for bringing these different departments together. And all of this is happening under the wonderful label of of a beautiful China. Beautiful China. Mei Li Zhongguo. It's one of the taglines of Chinese leader Xi Jinping. I discussed this with Christine Lo. Christine has spent the last 25 years influencing environmental policy in the Pearl River Delta through her work as a Hong Kong legislator, undersecretary for the environment, and CEO of the independent think tank Civic Exchange. She's heading to UCLA this spring to teach a course on policy and business, but with me, she shared her knowledge of how vision becomes reality in China. 
I think the Chinese government have been traveling on a path of thinking about what they want China to be, a vision for China. And obviously, the uh, Chinese government and the Chinese uh, Communist Party has been thinking about really what that means for them and how to implement it. And they've come up with uh, this this concept of ecological civilization, uh, not as a counterpoint to sustainable development. Uh, and it, sustainable development is also a concept that they uh, accept. But to really think through that going from where they are today, how can they save the environment and save um, uh, and see civilization, how they live, the Chinese civilization, how they go forward? So today, the notion of a beautiful China encompasses a vision about how Chinese people can live. So they've already talked about uh, poverty uh, alleviation. So the last 30 years has really been about how to get people out of the most dire poverty. And the Chinese government and party have come to a point where they can say, well, we think we've gotten rid of the worst kind of poverty. It doesn't mean everybody is is very materially uh, wealthy. In fact, not, they're not quite sure that that is the path to follow. They've always said that there is a certain fear that China is going to end up being like a typical Western society, where it's highly materialistic. That is why they say our vision, our policy, and our aim has been for people to reach a kind of middle-class society. Okay, now that that's going to be accomplished around 2020, China is saying we need to have a new development path of ecological civilization that will result in a beautiful China, and a beautiful China must mean a clean environment. So that's really the the narrative. And then now they are uh, rolling out more and more policies. Now, that doesn't mean they're only starting now. In fact, over the course of the last 10 years, they've been rolling gradually out more and more environmentally related policies. In China, decisions are made at the top, and then the rest of the country is expected to follow suit. Well, at least that's the plan. I mean, how do you get 1.3 billion people to put words into action? So the first thing that you have in China is um, you have party schools at, at and schools for administrators. And these are mandated, you know, if you're if, if, if you are provincial governors and different levels of officials and so on, uh, every so often you have to go to party school if you're a party member. If you're not a party member, you still need to go to some kind of uh, administrator's school. There, you could go from anywhere between two weeks to, you know, I've heard people say that they're gone for two or three months. So those are very intense sessions to understand what is national policy, what is party principles and policies. Of course, they're not just going there to hear one or two things, but, you know, it's this assemblage of how the party and the government thinks at any one moment in time. The second thing is you've got to show performance. And I, I, for quite a number of years now, um, not just the pursuit of GDP, you've got to show you have hit environmental targets social targets and environmental targets. So if you want to be promoted, you are going to be able to show, you have to be able to show you've hit those targets. That's extremely effective. 
things are not done overnight. This is where I think it's different from a kind of Western political system where politicians can say, I have a new idea, you know, this is the third way or this is whatever, right? The, the Chinese are much more careful. They tend to say, uh, I need to study this issue. And then gradually it becomes more and more important if they think it works. So today at the 19th Party Congress, which is the latest, highest level uh, policy, vision, speaking, you could say, uh, it's about articulating a new path, a different focus of development for the country. So that's why the 19th Party Congress is considered so important. The 19th Party Congress in 2017 is where Xi Jinping spelled out his ambition for a beautiful China. And during the Party Congress, the five-year plan was approved, putting in motion the new environmental targets that can be filtered down to local governments. I asked Zhang Qun, a journalist with China Dialogue, about the river and marine targets included in the five-year plan. First, the plan will likely increase the quality of coastal waters, 70% of which should achieve Class 1 or 2 quality by year 2020, an improvement of 50% since 2004. Second, the coastline retention rate should be over 35%. That is to say that 35% of coastlines should be left in their original state, without reclamation and with no construction. These two targets are the only two binding goals, because meeting these targets are believed to affect the careers of local officials. This plan will lay the foundation for a series of controls over marine pollution, including regulating the amount of pollutants to be released into important coastal areas, assessing the quality of coastal waters, and issuing licenses to permit the release of pollutants. Class 1 and 2 quality designation for rivers means drinkable water. Feng Hu continues. I think that um, if the government can highlight the importance of um, water pollution prevention and control in their five-year plan, which means in the following, um, in the following up actions from different ministries, they can allocate more efforts, including funding or even efforts from um, different departments towards um, research and development. So in the last year, we already see the the percentage of R&D in GDP reached 2.1%, which is equivalent to many um, developed countries. And China also wants to increase this percentage to 2.5% by 2020. So China is building up the capacity to deal with these issues, something which is a given in many developed countries. Just think of all the advisory boards in the U.S. government. Now, if we rewind ourselves uh, 15 years back, well, China just, you know, China for 1.2 billion people just doesn't have this. Um, uh, now, so going forward, you can imagine for China to be able to implement and enforce policies, the army of uh, officials and others that they have to put in place. So if you go to a university today, you know, and studying environmental science or en the environment, uh, it's a big deal. 
Because you can see in China, the policies, the funding that is coming in, is all going to support these things happening. But of course, you can be highly critical at any one moment in time to say, well, have you done it yet? No, I haven't done it yet. Are you happy with the system? No, we're not happy with the system yet. But there's going to be a lot happening. So this is also how China is dealing with the plastic problem. Crossing the river by feeling the stones, as Deng Xiaoping famously said, step by step, finding out which policies achieve the best results. Right now, government cadres around the country are being educated about the problem of river pollution, and possible solutions are being trialed in cities large and small. A good example of this local implementation is the so-called river chief system. Yuan Xu, also of China Water Risk, explained it to me. For each part of a river, there's a person who is in charge of that river. And uh, if the river is not going good, going well, and the person will be blamed, and that will impact the person's administrative assessment, which probably will affect the person's future promotion. So a local administrator is pinpointed as the go-to person to report illegal dumping. It is uh, stipulated uh, in the National River Chief document that every part of the river, there should be a notice board. On that board, you will see that the name of the river chief, the contacts, and uh, related information. So once you find problem, you can just directly contact river chief, or you can report to any other uh, departments or bureaus and say, this is, this is in charge, uh, blah, 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 is in charge of this river. Now it has problems. After successful trials in a couple counties, the government decided to promote this scheme all over the country. And though it has some issues, it's been quite effective as a step towards more government accountability for environmental pollution. There's a lot of work to do, but like Christine said, there's also a lot happening. In our next episode, I'll be talking to some experts on waste collection to find out what the government is doing to achieve a beautiful China. This podcast was brought to you by Sustainable Asia. 8 Million was produced by me, Marcy Trent Long, and the multi-talented Sam Beckemans. We could not have pulled this podcast series together without our amazing audio engineers, Annabeth and Karsten Martins of Aya Recording Studio. Our logo and social media outreach was by Kinsey Long. And special thanks to our voiceover, Kian Lee, audio assistant, Daniel Sun and our wonderful partners at China Dialogue. Isabel Hilton, who helped us formulate the idea for the project, Charlotte Middlehurst and Christopher Davey for their editing skills, and Huang Lushan for stepping in with interviews and translation. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Education and collaboration are our best path for creating a sustainable Asia.